When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the latest edition of the Manchester is Red podcast with myself, Tyrone Marshall and Samuel Lockhurst with me today. Uh, We are recording virtually today due to logistical reasons. It's the international break and no, we're not international bound, but we can't make it into the office. We will be back in the office for an in-person podcast on Friday, but it is online today just in case you're wondering any sound issues or anything like that, but fingers crossed it will all go smoothly. Uh, going smoothly is something that's not been happening for Manchester United so far this season. Might be the international break, but they are still making news. Uh, Samuel, you're just back from a week off, and one of the first things you've done is the line this morning about John Murta uh, being replaced. So sort of fill us in on on, on what's going on there and, and what the latest is with regards to that. That's that's certainly the the, the plan from, um, from the Ineos group's perspective anyway. They've I think in March they they went to Old Trafford, they went to Carrington. The presentations uh, were were put to them uh, by the staff, relevant staff at United. I mean they they met Richard Arnold, they met uh, Colette Roach, chief operating officer. They met John Murta, of course, is is the football director. And I think Ten Hag even said that he he bumped into Ratcliffe while he was at Carrington, having a look around as well. And through their you know due diligence, which I mean that, that that was back in March, and this strategic review is is nearing its. I think it's is it a year on Wednesday since it was announced. I think so. Um, this all, all of this has been in the pipeline for an inordinate amount of time, and of course, where we're expecting some form of announcement this week from from the Ineos, sorry, from United about uh, the Ineos group taking a twenty five percent stake in the club. Uh, you know. Changes are underway, or intended changes are underway. I, I mean, I was told last month that that Richard Arnold was was definitely going. I was also told that John Murta uh, was definitely going. Now, when when you're given that, when you're furnished with that information, however trusted the source may be, there's always going to be an element of um, uh, not not hesitation, but you have to take a step back and you wonder. Is, you know, is is this the right time to put it out? It, it will need more work as well, of course. And there are certain stories where you do want double sourcing on them as well. And this this is one of those stories. And I, obviously, although I was off last week, I, I saw the the Arnold announcement that I think Mark Kleinman from from Sky News, their, their business editor, he said that was happening that day. Mark Kleinman has been the, the go-to guy for anything um, non-takeover related, I think we can call it now. He was the one who broke the news about the United being for sale last year. And he's been ahead of the the curve with with everything. He's he he's been bang on the money. He he is also proof that that less is more. I mean, there was something in Private Eye recently about a timeline of stories, and it was actually quite a half-hearted timeline of the the non-takeover or the the, the takeover that some some had promised, and and all the stories that had been done around um, United being bought by Sheikh Hassim, not being bought by Sheikh Hassim. And um, you know, fortunately, we're we're coming to the end of it now. It's not necessarily the <coughs> excuse me the resolution that a lot of United fans wanted, but there are going to be key key changes at, at hierarchical level. And of course, Arnold is going. Uh, the expectation is that Jean Claude Blanc will become uh, United's next permanent chief executive with with Patrick Stewart the interim, and Ineos do want a new um, football director, director of football sporting director whatever you want to call it but the plan is for a new a new person to come in into that role which is understandable because just look at United's recruitment hit rate over the last decade you could uh, there are probably two outright successes Bruno Fernandes and Zlatan Ibrahimovic I would argue um I, I you know a, a very ten Hag signings I, I'd say that Lissandra Martinez has been an unqual- has, has been a success but Come the end of this year, he'll have spent what he'll have missed four months of club football in in, in twenty twenty three. So, 
even even that is even Martinez is is somewhat you know marred unfortunately by by the metatarsal injury that he sustained against Sevilla back in April and clearly the the surgery didn't go as well as United thought at the time and look a lot of those signings the majority of those signings have not come on John Murta's watch he was only appointed uh, football director in in March 2021 and during his time you would argue that the hit rate has has risen ever so slightly uh, but even with, I mean, I wasn't one of these people who thought that Cristiano Ronaldo was a disaster for United. I mean, he scored 24 goals in his first season back and he was the club's player of the year and he kept Ole Gunnar Solskjaer on a job for a little while longer as well and he gave United fans some great, some you know, great memorable moments in an otherwise dreadful season. But look how it transpired in the second season, how how quickly it spiralled. Um, and, and unfortunately for Murta, his his tenure, although he oversaw the, the appointment of Ten Hag, which was actually a bold a bold move at the time, and there was a dressing room clamour from Mauricio Pochettino to come in, and he, he credit to him, he actually ignored that clamour and he went for Ten Hag, and I still maintain that Ten Hag has probably been the best decision United have made in the last decade. He's, he's restored the tenets of United, um, Last season, it seemed like the the club reconnected with the fan base. They had a successful season. They have gone backwards this season. That's undoubted. But I don't think Ten Hag's tenure is a write-off whatsoever. And as I said, Martinez has been a good signing. I think Andre Anana has been a worthy signing, even though he's 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 made some mistakes. His his form has picked up of late, and the fact that he's injured is yeah, and 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 how concerned United fans are about that is is testament to to his recent upturn in form. But for every Martinez and, and Anana, there is £146.3 million invested in transfer fees alone on Anthony and Mason Mount. The the Casemiro deal, which was driven by uh, Murta, last season he, Casemiro was influential, this season he has been inept. And already you see a lot of United supporters, United punters talking about should they should they look to offload him next year if, if they can? Um, because he's just not looked up to it this season. It's been a classic case of second season syndrome obviously Christian Eriksen was a short-term signing I think he's been a good signing for United but then you've got Tyrell Malassia and the more you think about Tyrell Malassia and how he impressed Eric Ten Hag when he played for Feyenoord against Ajax well who would he have been up against to have impressed Ten Hag he'd have been up against Anthony which is not really saying a lot for a left back so in terms of the recruitment strategy it's it's outdated it's it's not been right signing players for the manager rather than the club and when you're the football director overseeing that as well, it, you can't be surprised if with, with this impending investment coming in, which I think you know it's pretty clear that Jim Ratcliffe wants to signal the beginning of the end for the Glazer family and that this will be a phased takeover. It, it could be the most, <coughs> excuse me, the most phased takeover in history, given the 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 the, uh, the, the snail-like pace that the Glazers function at when it comes to um, decision making and uh, taking their time over things but Murta was was an appointment one of the first notable appointments behind the scenes by Ed Woodward Ed Woodward was a Glazer acolyte Richard Arnold is going Arnold came to the club in 2007 his his background is you know his his best work was done in commercial and that is what the Glazers are really renowned for at United that's that's clearly their where their best work has been as well what they've overseen so you can't be surprised that these these figures are are being targeted and look United didn't get into the minutiae of why Arnold is leaving and there's a very good reason for that because you know the, the fact of the matter is that Ineos do not want him to be the chief executive they feel that there's a compelling case for change to um, to be made there and that also applies to um, the football director role yeah let's move on briefly to, to Richard Arnold then um, that that announcement came last week uh, during your week off listeners will notice I didn't ask Samuel how his week off was at the start of the podcast there's a good reason for that he doesn't want to doesn't want to relive the trauma of, uh, of a week of, of a week of illness from last week um, but yeah R- Richard Arnold uh, announced last week that he is leaving Um I mean, when you assess his tenure, I guess better than the previous guy is is one way of summing it up. But then summing it up, but then that's probably a a low bar. He kind of empowered people like Murta, didn't he? He did admit that football wasn't his his strong point. He's a rugby man, and gave you know gave power to Murta to make those footballing decisions. 
but he's not wholly convinced as a chief executive and, and certainly the the Mason Greenwood debacle in the summer was um was a black mark against his name for sure. Yeah, that's when it unraveled just the the whole handling of of that situation, the very fact that they were looking to integrate him into the back into the squad. Uh, morally, I, I thought that was wrong. A lot of Manchester United supporters thought that was wrong as well. And, and fan pressure, uh, fan power won in the end. Uh, had, had the supporters not, had there not been as much of a backlash from supporters as there was, Mason Greenwood would probably be playing for Manchester United at the moment. But the prospect of him coming back into the United squad and playing for the team again uh, just just abhorred far too many supporters. And, and United underestimated that. And Really, that that was in, extremely careless because there have been notable examples in recent years before that where United have underestimated fan sentiment. The, the best example being the Super League where they tried to pull up the drawbridge and what happened was that United fans quite literally stormed the castle uh, in, in the case of postponing the, the Liverpool game that, that day at Old Trafford. We were both there for it and that was probably supporters' greatest victory over... The Glazer family's occupation, given that Joel Glazer hardly ever speaks, but he was more than happy to put um, to put his name to, to comments about how wonderful the Super League would be. And then more recently, you've got the, it's, it's easy to forget it, given how much happens with Manchester United, but the abandoned move for Marco Arnautovic, which on a sporting and a moral level, again, United supporters were absolutely appalled by it. Richard Arnold was being emailed by countless season ticket holders, uh, informing him that they would, you know, they they would not, they would want their money back, essentially, effectively, if if United went through with this deal. And what happened was that United um, they withdrew from it. So again, there have been these examples where United have made very, or, or have certainly considered making very bad decisions, very obvious bad decisions. And they've not really given enough thought or consideration to what supporters would think of it. I think talking to the fans advisory board where those on it have to sign non-disclosure agreements or the fans forum, which is a more watered down and it's a public version, the minutes are always accessible online. That was never going to wash. You're still dealing with a very tiny minority of of Manchester United matchgoers there. And... Of course, you know there were some very, very um, specific details of Arnold's intentions with with Greenwood that were leaked and reported um, very courageously uh, by by Adam Crafton on on, on the Athletic. Uh, great, great journalism, and from, from what I was told, Arnold was also furious about how it leaked, and you know he actually wanted, well, he tried to initiate a, a mole hunt as well to try and ascertain who who it was at United. Um, you know, he was of the he was is of the assumption that it was a, an employee of Manchester United who who leaked the the details of their intended plans and of course in the end it, it looked an absolute mess and from that point on United don't really seem to have recovered and you you talk about what constitutes a crisis and I think as early as September I I said after the Brighton defeat that it was fair to say United were in crisis not just because of the results but because of what was happening off the pitch you had the Anthony situation and before that of course you had the handling of the Greenwood situation as well and really I don't think Arnold covered himself in any glory with with the statement he gave um, on, on the Greenwood matter as well and some of the details that emerged from United's fact finding of it were quite frankly so troubling that we, we didn't publish them um, it, it would have been inappropriate it would have been um, not legally sound to have done so and from that point onwards, uh, there's always been a sense that he's not necessarily been on borrowed time, even though it's transpired that, that he is on borrowed time. But he's he's just he's kind of like not not taking his chance. He's um, he's he's made a mess of it because, as you said, when he took over from I think it was at the start of February last year, um, he was very you know as you said he he empowered heads of department. He he wasn't trying to spin plates like Ed Woodward was. He was never going to. You know, go here, there, and everywhere. Getting an easy jet flight to Barcelona to try and sign Neymar. I know, obviously, he did. He, the irony is, he actually did go to Barcelona to try and sign Frankie De Jong, and 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 they didn't come back with with Frankie De Jong. But that was the exception to the norm. There, there were very few cases where his his presence would be required overseas to 
to get a deal done. Uh, De Jong United thought they were getting, and, and another one. I think he, I think he did go to Amsterdam to, um, you know, help help finalise the deal for Lisandro Martinez as well. But other than that, you didn't really see much of him. And I think really he has to see it as a success that there aren't as many pictures of him in in, in Getty as there were of Ed Woodward either. I mean, we we try and find original pictures of Richard Arnold, but he's he's just not. Um, He's, he's not as photographic in in the sense that he's not as newsworthy and has not been as newsworthy as, as Ed Woodward was. Ed Woodward, from the very start, people were thinking, who, who the hell is this guy? I mean, he was pinned down as an imposter by the Red Issue fanzine on, on deadline day in, in, in September 2013, and he never really quite recovered from from that, that day or that transfer window during his time at Manchester United. Whereas Arnold, that's, you know, the only time we heard of him, heard from him properly, was that that pub talk that was literally held at a pub that was um, filmed surreptitiously by a supporter, where you got some insight into what he wanted to do, and he was quite upfront about it. Look, John Mert is the football director. You go and sign sign the players. I'm the chief executive. I'll I'll sign it off. I'll I'll push for funds, etc. And and again, what going back to less is more that that did make Arnold's one full season as chief executive a success. It was a, it was a success for United. They finished third, they won a trophy, they got to an FA Cup final as well, where they did go down with a fight against Manchester City. And uh, it, it felt, I think also, which you can't underrate, underestimate, is that they reconnected the team with, with the matchgoers. You felt that after, particularly after the 2021-22 season, where... It was a really toxic atmosphere where you had supporters telling Paul Pogba to F off, where you had fans turning on Harry Maguire because he wasn't showing enough appreciation for Cristiano Ronaldo one night. Last season, particularly after the abysmal start as well and and how uh, apoplectic United supporters were at Brentford where they were chanting, you're not fit to wear the shirt, to go from there to where they were in February, March, May, June time with the cup final... Uh, that was a massive turnaround and that's what makes it such a shame that all that good work was undone with the intention with Mason Greenwood it was I, I know he was he would have been an expensive asset to write off but that's really what they should have done they should have put the moral um, side of it ahead of the football side I know a lot of people listening to me at the moment will probably be turning possibly turning off and don't want to hear it because they disagree with it and they think that Mason Greenwood should be playing for Manchester United but United eventually got that decision right, but they went about it in the just about the most wrong way possible. And unfortunately for Richard Arnold, he's, his reputation hasn't really quite recovered from that. And all these exchanges that we've had with him, and like he's 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 a gregarious guy in an impromptu setting. Um, he knows people's names. He, he's he's made more. Not not more of an effort than Woodward, but he certainly made an effort, and he he does put FaceTime in from time to time, as as busy as he is. But ultimately, with the Ineos investment um, coming in and the fact that he Richard Arnold joined United in 2007 and uh, the, you know, he's, he's a Glazer acolyte and as recently as last month he was um, defending the Glazers to, to interested observers with some delusional or uh, you know, comments that, that are in denial really about how you shouldn't always believe the media. But I don't think that that's ever going to wash with Manchester United supporters. It's certainly not going to wash with um, you or I or, or any of our other colleagues who, who cover the club. Absolutely. That's the uh, departures, the, the impending departure of um, John Merchant, the confirmed departure of Richard Arnold dealt with. We'll be back in part two to look at what comes next for United. Welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast. Uh, we've just discussed the departures under Ineos and their impending uh, 25% stake in United. That is going to mean replacements. Uh, first of all, football director, sporting director, whatever we want to call this role, with John Murtagh leaving United, will need a new one. Uh, Paul Paul Mitchell's name is is mentioned constantly with with this role uh, from Greater Manchester. Was at Old Trafford a few times when uh, Ralph Ranić was in charge and was linked with the role then, but is actually quite friendly with Ranić. Will be familiar to Ineos as well, having worked in Liga and for Monaco, a role he's he's recently left. Dougie Freeman, another name that's that's been linked with a, a role at United. Um, 
done a pretty good job at Palace, I think, fairly underrated job, an interesting name in the frame. But it's an, an appointment they, they're going to have to get right, Samuel. Um, John Murta was, was the continuity candidate probably when when he got the gig in March 2021, I think, with Darren Fletcher as technical director. He'd, he'd been at United a long time and at that time United were always keen to kind of avoid the the football directors who who are very media friendly, who've been talking their roles up. But this time it's, it's an appointment after, you know, you, you've mentioned it in your piece at, at launch today, the, the recruitment mistakes, the billion pound plus that's been wasted really they they need to be getting a structure in place that can work for the long term now don't they whoever that man is it, it absolutely and in fairness to Murta, he has implemented a structure there and that they've they've got a football director they've got a technical director deputy football director head of recruitment head of data science uh head of transfer negotiations um, these guys have all come in on on Murta's watch. Uh, head of football operations as well with with Dave Harrington joining from from Everton earlier this year. So Murta has overseen this this structure, but ultimately, and I'll go back to what I said, uh, quoting Woodward a few weeks ago, if if you don't get recruitment right, you're you're done for. Uh, to, to paraphrase him, and that that's what was always quite peculiar at the time of Murta's appointment. In that the the obvious question we had for United was two years ago when when Solskjaer was made the permanent manager. Uh, I think the the main line from from that news story was that a technical director was appointment was was imminent. We were told that they were close to it. it turned out that it came two years later, and the the, the title had changed, even though they did appoint Darren Fletcher as technical director, but they were talking about a director of football effectively. And so why did it take two years later to make that decision? And when it did come to making that decision, they chose someone who was staring them straight at the face every day at Carrington in, in John Murta. And United said that they didn't want someone who just specialised in recruitment and they... Um, they cited Murta's work in, in jointly run the academy, which he did for a brief period with John Alexander, the former club secretary. And I think he, he also, I think they also pointed out his work with the women's team because he did uh, a lot of work in cobbling together the squad for their inaugural season in in twenty eighteen nineteen when they got promoted at the first time of asking to uh, the top tier of WSL. So that that was their that was their rationale for it, and they didn't want, as you said, they didn't their their reasoning for it was that they didn't want these football director of footballs who were just known for you know good signings and were, were very media friendly and very front of centre. And the more you think about it, you, the more you think that is that an ego thing. I mean, Edwin Van der Sar was never ever going to go to United. Not because he didn't want to. I mean, he pretty much said as much that he would want to. But when he was at Ajax, he was the chief executive. And him going to United would mean that he would have been a threat to, to Ed Woodward. The, the sporting director at Ajax, of course, was was Mark Overmars until um, he fell on his sword uh, at the start of last year, I think it was. And so Van der Sar discounted Paul Mitchell, Ralph Rangnick, all these names. They didn't want them. And it was murder. But again, that's a contradiction of what Woodward had told us previously, that they had to get recruitment right. And if you want to get recruitment right, surely you would want someone who has got an excellent track record with signings at a big club or a club of a certain prominence or has got an eye for talent. Like I mean, with Rangnick, obviously, um, he, he hadn't necessarily operated at the biggest clubs. But the players that he hothoused or he cherry picked to take to uh, the, the Red Bull group or Red Bull teams were, you know, it was it was a striking list. Like an eleven of Ralph Rangnick um, finds is is a pretty impressive list. And United in the end decided to renege on renege on this whole thing of you know if not getting recruitment right we're, we're screwed and going for someone who really didn't have a great deal of experience in it. I mean, Murta would, would often be the guy who'd meet a player at the airport and drive them to Carrington. That was the case with Alexis Sanchez and Alex Teles. And I think there was an occasion where, when 
they were getting the women's team together, he did actually introduce himself to um, some female football agents as, as the director of football, even though he wasn't. But he climbed up the ranks and, you know, he, he, he as you said, he, he was very much the continuity candidate. Now, the way Ineos operate and just looking at what Nice have done with their recruitment, they've, they've poached the guy from Lons, uh, which happened last year, I believe it was. I can't remember his name. But they've taken the guy from Lons, and if you look at how what Lons are doing, I mean, not this season necessarily, but they qualified for the Champions League now, last season. So clearly they had a pretty good squad team in place to get where they wanted to be. And Nice this season, I think they're second in Liga at the moment. Um, it's a very different Nice team to the one that was just uh, cherry-picking Premier League rejects, which was never going to work. I mean... I think what sometimes, it's a quote that might get brought up a fair bit with Sir Jim Ratcliffe uh, from the Ineos book, where I think he said about, he couldn't understand why Ross Barkley wasn't getting in the Nice team, how good he was and what have you. And I'm think, I think a lot of us would see that quote and think, well, if you'd watched him in England the last four or five years, you'd know why he'd ended up at Nice and you'd know why he's now you know been ended up at Luton having been bombed out of Nice after about a year. And they've completely changed their uh, recruitment strategy. It's, a mu- it's going for much younger players now. And it's although it's Liga and although it's Nice, it, given the progress they've made this season, it is logical, having appointed a new chief executive and a new sporting director last year, that Ineos would want to apply that to United, where you look at the chief executive and you look at the football director. Are those, are those individuals indispensable? No. Is there room for improvement? Yes. Why wouldn't you want to improve it? And in doing so, and should these, um, you know, obviously there's going to be a new chief executive and they intend for a new director of football to come in. With these new personnel, if that that elicits an improvement, Ratcliffe gets the, gets the credit. And ultimately, that's what he wants as well. He doesn't want United to continue to stagnate and to languish in sixth and... Um, compete in the Europa League every season he wants them to be the, the best team in England again and to do that you've got to make changes at hierarchical level and as as flawed as um, you know, Ten Hag's management has been this season and his signing strategy and the players that he's pushed for United do need objective figures above him there who are going to borderline dictate what what's needed i think rich said last um, the other week you know you, it shouldn't it shouldn't be difficult for a director of football to offer up three names um for a certain position and if ten Hag doesn't like one of them they could say okay we'll, we'll we'll put him to one side but we'll go for these two you know you're not going to agree on everyone i think michael edwards was the guy who um pushed for mohammed salah at liverpool jürgen klopp wasn't quite <coughs> sold on him they they signed him for thirty five million pounds from from Roma, and that at that time you'd probably say that was one, maybe one of the last years or seasons where it's still advisable to sign to sign anyone from Serie A or there was a good you know there was quite a deep talent pool in Serie A to go for. That's what I always had an issue with the Amrabat deal in the summer, and that United not only did they go for someone who had played for Ten Hag once upon a time at Utrecht. But he was operating at quite a, you know, medium to low level in Serie A for Fiorentina. Um, the the World Cup performances, you've, you've just got to dismiss that as misleading. If 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 you've not heard of a player before a World Cup and he plays like a demon, the chances are his performance level is not necessarily going to be at that level, at, at club level as well. But also Serie A has become a dumping ground for Premier League clubs. And United should know that better than the most because Lukaku, Smalling, Young, Damian, Sanchez, they have all been jettisoned to, to Italian clubs. And Italy have not qualified for the last two World Cups. There are very few Premier League clubs that are going to Italian clubs to take their best players off them. Newcastle did it with Sandro Tonali and look look where that's got them. And although Tonali looks a good player, you'd probably say he's the exception to the norm as far as um, players in the Italy national team goes. Italy won the Euros a couple of years ago, which you know, they, they, they were worthy winners, but 
it's it's a little bit like Germany at the start of the century in that you can't overlook the decline of the, the team in general and the fact they've not qualified for two consecutive World Cups is a black mark against them and also a black mark against the league. It's not like the 90s or the um, or the start of the century and where if you know, there was there was so much talent in in Serie A and some of the players were completely unattainable for for Premier League clubs because the way of living in in Italy and the the stature of the clubs and the the, the um the, just the the fascination of the league there were compelling cases to stay it wasn't until the money started really you know slushing around the Premier League that there was a the the Premier League usurped Serie A to become you know the the, the premium football league in the world so i mean this has been a bit long-winded but ultimately united do need someone who's going to be more objective in um in, in choosing which players should come in and also just having a long-term consistent strategy of signing players for the club rather than the manager because you've got to always be prepared for the worst case scenario and the worst case scenario of course would be the manager is sacked. Now, if Ten Hag is sacked, there are far too many players there that a new manager who will be very, very different from Ten Hag would come in and look at and think, I do not want him, I don't want him, and I don't want him. And those players are, are too, that's because those players are too aligned with, with Ten Hag. Yeah, absolutely. And in, in terms of the chief executive role, Jean-Claude Blanc seems to be the um, the likely appointee there. He's, he's working for Ineos at the moment. Uh, former chief executive at Paris Saint-Germain, former chief executive at Juventus. That is a clear step change from the approach to that role under the Glazers, isn't it? When it's been Ed Woodward, Richard Arnold, it's been bankers, people with commercial success, money men, basically, as chief executive. And now Ineos looks at to be, be forcing their man into the role um, ahead of the Glazers. And, and their man is someone with a football background. And I think that's that's something that every United fan is, is going to be applauding, isn't it? It is, and it, it it is a massive departure from the norm for for Manchester United beyond beyond the um, even before the Glazers. I mean, Martin Edwards was the chairman from what the the late seventies or the early eighties. Uh, you know, when these transitions happened, it was always an internal replacement. Peter Kenyon became the chief executive, I think, in nineteen ninety nine or two thousand, and he was already on the board. When Kenyon um, upped sticks to go to Chelsea in 2003, he was replaced by David Gill, uh, who was also already on the board and, and an internal replacement. Ed Woodward, when he replaced Gill, was already at United. Richard Arnold, of course, when he replaced Ed Woodward, was already at United. So this is a, a break with tradition that, that goes back decades. I mean, Martin Edwards was, was the chairman and, and his predecessor was his was his father, Louis Edwards. And um I mean my 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 knowledge of, of, of the history of Manchester United only goes back so far in terms of who the the chairman were. I mean Les Olive was the club secretary in in the nineteen nineteen sixties. Um but as uh, you know, it's it's pretty clear that um, you know, although I'm I'm guessing here, I, I suspect they they've never ever gone for a, a French chief executive and and didn't get, weren't of that persuasion in the 1940s or the 1950s. You know, back then it was the the local. In the case of Louis Edwards, it was the local butcher who was who was running the football club. So uh, it's it is quite a fascinating break with tradition, but it's it's that kind of boldness that United need to need to oversee and they need to embrace because. I think one of the one of the issues that we always had with with Ed Woodward um, during his tenure was that you had these essentially these mates from the University of Bristol, Woodward, uh, Richard Arnold, and, and Matt Judge, who had somehow come together to occupy some of the most powerful roles at one of the biggest sporting institutions on on the planet, and it seemed like their their preferred sport was also rugby now that's not a recipe for success and united have not been successful in the last decade since woodward came to prominence and then he was replaced by by arnold so there has been too much continuity i think david gill who you know rather inexplic inexplicably well not inexplicably i mean he's he's held up as this you know 
model chief executive and how great he was for United. He wasn't. He just had the very good fortune of being the chief executive while Sir Alex Ferguson was the manager. I mean, David Gill didn't do... I don't think he did anything particularly impressive uh, during his 10 years as, as chief executive. He he betrayed the supporters as well. He said debt, debt was the road to ruin. But then he was more than happy to jump into bed with the Glazer family um, and, and get on board with, with their takeover. And with Peter Kenyon before him, I mean, Ferguson was, was quite disparaging about him. He blamed him for uh, cocking up a, a deal for Ronaldinho in 2003. And again, he was not a figure at United at that time that people were waxing lyrical about because United, their figurehead was Sir Alex Ferguson. As, as For as long as Sir Alex Ferguson was the manager of Manchester United, he was the figurehead of the football club. It didn't really matter who the chairman or the, the chief executive was, really. He he pretty much did run the football club. Uh, he, he didn't need uh, you know, people in certain positions. It was almost, you know, people occupied token roles there. But of course, since Ferguson retired... United have been caught with their their pants down really you know they've they've been exposed and the way football clubs run now is extremely different to how they were run back then when guys like Ferguson or or Arsene Wenger um their influence was was so great that it it, it overrode you know it didn't matter who was who's on the board or, or lingering in the background there are very few examples of that now and even even at City with Pep Guardiola. I mean, City are a club very much in Guardiola's image, but they implemented the structure with Begiristein and Soriano before Guardiola came in. And of course, he's got you know, influence that I'd say is comparable to Ferguson in terms of signings and hires, but he's earned it because he's a great coach. He's the greatest coach this century and he's one of the greatest managers in, in the game's history. There are very, very few managers in this day and age who earn that you know have that clout or, or or get that leeway in terms of a running of a football club and United aren't going to get it with with Ten Hag and, and whoever replaces him whenever that may be it's highly unlikely that that manager who comes in is going to be someone who can have the, the you know the, the seismic effect that, that Ferguson had or Samat Busby had uh, when 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 he came in as manager as well, they these are generational greats, and there's a reason for that. They don't come around very often. Absolutely, uh, that is all for part two of the Manchester is Red podcast. We'll be back shortly to look ahead briefly to the weekend. Welcome back to the Manchester is Red podcast. Uh, away from Old Trafford, the big Premier League news over the last 10 days or so has been Everton's 10-point deduction for, for breaching financial rules. Fair to say that Goodison Park is going to be absolutely seething at the weekend. Everton are furious at the sanction. And which club takes their flaky away record to Merseyside? But Manchester United. Um, always a, a, a lively atmosphere at Goodison when United are in town. And it's going to be um, doubly the case this weekend. I think it's fair to say that the Everton fans are, are going to be making a point against sanctions that their club feels uh, are unfair. And it's it, it's kind of... In a way, it's made it a harder assignment than it already was for United against a team who were playing reasonably well. United's away record in it, what you'd call difficult places to go, I guess. I mean, their away record generally is pretty poor, but when the atmosphere is lively and it can be intense, then they've not really shown a great deal of stomach for the fight or, or ability to get over the line in those games recently, have they? And this feels like it's shaping up to be a, a pretty seismic test for them. I mean, United have won their last three away in the Premier League. It's it's it doesn't feel like that as as uh, you discussed last week. They're they're somehow the the form team on on results in in the league, which is just extraordinary. I mean that that sequence, of course, is um, I think it's safe to say that it was it was punctured by a couple of defeats, two you know two consecutive three nil home defeats in to Manchester City and to Newcastle in the League Cup, and then a very damaging defeat uh, to Copenhagen. And I mean, strangely enough, I think that Copenhagen game is is the best performance United have have had all season in terms of uh, their certainly the first forty minutes of that game, um, the the game management for probably the th- half an hour, thirty five minutes of the second half as well. 
they were really impressive for 70 odd minutes that night yet two capitulations at the end of both halves cost them dearly and that they're uh, I mean they have to win in Istanbul I think it's safe to say I think even if they get a draw next week they can um, they can go out depending on what Copenhagen do against Bayern Munich but of course before that it's this Everton game I think a lot of us were looking forward to it already because it's a good test of United and Everton have been doing well of late it's it's now become in a weekend where you've got City playing Liverpool you've arguably got the game of the weekend coming at Goodison Park between Everton and United purely because of of, of the news that came out last week about um, Everton's 10 point deduction and there have been some really good pieces um written about it and it's, yeah, it's it's a fascinating case and I think when the news dropped pretty much everyone's initial um, reaction was uh, well what's what's going to happen to Manchester City given that they've got 115 charges to answer but I'm reading Jonathan Northcroft's piece on Everton in the Sunday Times he, he suggested that City was still two two years away from from judgment which is uh, I mean it's absolutely extraordinary if if it does take that long I think it was in February that the 115 charges were announced. That was long enough ago, and I think even just before then, I, we were probably all wondering, you know, when when are the Premier League going to pull their finger out and communicate something on these charges, the alleged charges that are hanging over City, because that had been in the pipeline for a long, long time. With Everton, people have, you know. They've generated a lot of sympathy or garnered a lot of sympathy. It feels like because they are, they're Everton. They're not. They've they've not been a successful team in the last thirty years. They are a big club, but they're a club that have been, that have had to stave off relegation in the past couple of seasons. And there is a lot to like them about them. And you know maybe the death of of Bill Kenwright recently as well. That has, um, that's that's also contributed to this quite sympathetic press. I think they're getting and. They they said themselves in their statement, effectively in their statement last week, they said, "Look, we're we're going to be very interested to see what you do to Manchester City, uh, because they've they've cooperated with the Premier League. City have been the absolute opposite of it, uh, which made it pretty rich when Guardiola said at the start of the season, you know, the Premier League need to they need to make a ruling now tomorrow this evening, whatever it was he said, and it would have been it would be a lot easier if City would cooperate more with the Premier League, but." All the um, all the noise suggests otherwise on that, and as far as United are concerned, I mean Goodison they've they've had a few horror shows there in in, in recent years. The, the the most infamous one coming on on Easter Sunday in in twenty nineteen, where they, I mean until Brentford that was probably probably the nadir of the the post Ferguson reign. It was a it was an absolutely gutless performance. The performance under Rangnick as well was similarly gutless even though they only lost 1-0 I think they only lost 1-0 that day because Everton were a bit of a shambles at the time and the only reason that game was settled was because of the one truly committed player on the pitch which ironically was Anthony Gordon because as soon as he got wind that clubs were in for him he um he certainly no longer wanted to to be at Everton and he, he's very much persona non grata in in, in that part of, of of Merseyside now and Everton seem to have an identity under Sean Dyche, and it's an, an identity that the the supporters can get behind. There was always going to be some scepticism about the appointment of Dyche, but I think they had to make that appointment at that time. And they've they've not exactly been cut adrift by this points deduction either. I, I think most of us expect them not to be relegated. And if anything, you'd advise Everton against appealing just on the off chance that they could be hit with a you know, a more severe sanction because their season is still eminently salvageable. Okay, they might not climb as as high up the, the league table as they they would have done with, with ten more points, but they should get out of dodge and um sorry, not get out of dodge, they should get out of the, the mire there in the relegation zone. There there were plenty of teams worse than them to go down. So I, I don't think that that's gonna be a concern and it's the classic case where I'm sure Dyche will play on the siege mentality. Goodison Park can be a raucous ground. I don't think it's been too raucous going there um, to watch United in recent years. I mean, it's been a it's been a peculiar time for Everton since uh, Farhad Mashiri came in as as the owner, and you know this his his investment has been uh, pretty shambolic and as far as signings go and their transfer dealings and 
it feels like a club that has had hope extracted from it as well in, in recent years. And just as it felt like they were regaining some hope under Deitch, of course, this, this happens. But I still think that they can channel this you know, pretty wretched negative into a positive. And as we've discussed before, um, United don't normally fare well in grounds which are atmospheric or hostile. They against Copenhagen it, it wasn't a hostile atmosphere it was you know it was loud it was you know it was, it was a good experience for us to, to to be at as well it's it's an impressive ground the park and as you know from covering city there last year but this this united team you, you don't sense they have the character over these next four weeks with some really testing away games um within that period and, and this period is also bookended by two games on, on Merseyside it's this these these matches between from Everton to, to Liverpool um, which I think it's that eight days before Christmas I think it is they're going to have a huge bearing on United season and they've got the injury list to, to obviously contend with as well but even if they did, had a, a fully fit squad the, the you get the sense that the the character that was in this team that this team this squad was possibly teaming with last season in terms of character it certainly ebbed this season absolutely and and those three away games next week Everton Galatasaray and, and Newcastle are, are going to be vital for setting the tone you mentioned those three away wins in a row Burnley Sheffield United and Fulham they're they're kind of the sides United have beaten away from home I think there's an argument that if United win any of those away games next week, it would be their best away win under Ten Hag. Their their away record has been that poor, really, since the start of, of last season. They're, they've not had anything, really, that you'd call maybe a standout away win, and, and maybe next week we'll, we'll bring that. Um, we'll have another podcast on Friday looking a bit more in-depth at that Everton game, but just one thing for the international break to, to touch on, and, and we'll probably have an update by Friday on, on what the situation is, but... Another injury concern for United with Andre Anana um, coming off for Cameroon against Mauritius, I think it was, last week. Not in the squad now for their second um, international, their second World Cup qualifier during this break. So it's, it's probably a doubt at the very least for the weekend. Perhaps we'll see a debut for Altai Bayinde. It'd be a, 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 a case of being thrown in at the deep end, I guess, and... and Maybe an argument now that, that it would have been wise to play him in, in one of those Carabao Cup games and, and just give him the experience of, of his United debut rather than the possibility of of having to, to play three tricky away games next week, depending on the situation with Anana. He, he certainly should have played against Crystal Palace in the third round of the League Cup. But that was that was illogical. It was such a an obvious game to to give a new backup goalkeeper a, a debut against a Palace team that was completely unfussed about going out of the League Cup that was reflected by the team they played and then the team they played at Old Trafford a few days later when, when they won in the Premier League. And also, had Anana had not got injured, you've got the Africa Cup of Nations coming up in the new year where he could miss up to up to seven matches, I think it is. Again, it's that would not have been ideal preparation for a new goalkeeper coming from... Uh, a league that is not I think it's the polite thing to say would be it's it's not exactly testing uh, the Turkish league it's not a reliable gauge of of a player's quality I mean there have been a lot of Premier League former Premier League players who've, who've ended up in Turkey and there's there's a reason for that as well and we've not seen what he's like I mean Bayern did play against Germany last week in a in, in a friendly that they they won um, T- Turkey beat Germany 3-2 didn't they I think in Berlin so he has had some playing time at least uh, at international level, but it's he's an unknown quantity um, to anyone who goes to if if he starts at Goodison on on Sunday, there are going to be a handful of people in the ground that have actually watched him over the course of of ninety minutes, and um, that's that's not a it's not a great prospect for United, and especially also because Anana has his form has picked up of late. He's he's kept clean sheets. He's made some some very good saves as well. Um, you know, the, the, the defeats United have had against Copenhagen, City, Newcastle. I don't think anybody's really pointed the finger of blame at him. He could arguably have done better for Copenhagen's third goal. Um, but looking at it again, 
he he clearly expects Diogo Dallo to to take care of that, and and Dallo is, is is dozing, and unfortunately for United, the the ball is all of a sudden in the back of the net, and it's it's three three. But I think with Inano, although <clears throat> although he's had a fair level of criticism this season because there have been some howlers, and he has his his, his shot stopping technique at times is is, is erratic and, and and unconventional. Um, I, I don't think any of us have written a piece where saying that he's a write-off or United have made a mistake or that they, they, they got it wrong um, letting David De Gea go. I mean, there's a reason why De Gea has still not got a club and I thought his, his tweet the other week um, with, with the, was it the emoji over the, the suggestion that he could come back to United? Uh, that was that was just desperate, really. It, it's, it's someone playing up to the crowd. It's someone who, who it strikes me as someone who, who can't let go um, clearly, if he had had it his way, he'd have still been at United. But I, I maintain that, as far as what United needed as a modern goalkeeper, they they got an upgrade in Anana. They've they've not got a better shot stopper than than De Gea. There are very still very few employed goalkeepers who are better at keeping the ball out of the back of the net than than David De Gea. But he did stand still with with other parts of his game. And although United have not really utilised Anana's distribution that much in recent weeks due to a myriad of reasons uh, that there, there is still you know potential there and it's, it's rare that you talk about a 27 year old and, and use the word potential but given the the state of the team and the squad um, you you have to imagine that when United are in a better place they'll have a better version of Anana and he's been a pretty good there's been a pretty good version of him in recent weeks so but as you say, it's it's you know it'd be quite um, a positive if if Bayinda all of a sudden he's parachuting into the team and he's he's going back to Istanbul as a former Fenerbahce player uh, starting starting against Galatasaray if if Anana's not fit for that. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that that could be uh, that could be a, a very interesting test for him. Um, right, that's all for today. Thank you very much, Samuel. That's not a problem at all. Um, we will be back in person on Friday. Uh, hopefully Samuel's cough will have gone by then. Uh, we're back to, to preview the Everton game and look ahead to what is a pretty decisive week for United. But uh, that's all for now. Do please give us a like wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe as well. Leave a review if you've enjoyed it. And we'll be back on Friday. <laughs>